When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Inquire all those questions you've always wanted to know. Ask Katie anything. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of Ask Katie Anything. I'm your host, licensed marriage and family therapist, Katie Morton. I am so glad you're here. This is the podcast where I answer any and all mental health related questions from you, the amazing audience. We have eight questions today. Let's just jump right into those. Oh, and it also really helps if you share this podcast, tell a friend about it, leave a good review. That really helps because so far, Sean and I with the podcast have just been doing it. Um, like, you know, there's never been really any branded anything. Um, but, you know, like anything, we have to pay our bills and we're hopeful that we can grow this and, you know, reach out to other people, have more collaborations and things like that. And sharing and leaving good reviews helps us with all of that. Okay, let's jump into that first question. This question says, hey, Katie, how does someone actually deal with the quote unquote Sunday scaries? Every Sunday, I get so overwhelmed with anxiety for the upcoming week. I just freeze. Even though I have things that I need to accomplish, like meal prepping, laundry, etc., I end up not being able to do any of it. I just sit there and scroll through social media to self-soothe because I am so overwhelmed. How do I get out of this freeze state so that I can get stuff done and actually enjoy my weekend? And then another add-on to it that I'm going to answer right at the same time says, how do you stop using social media as a distraction from life and all the things that we should or need to be doing? Okay. Great question. And I think everybody has some kind of version of this where before the start of the week or before, you know, a new job or a new event or something like that, we can get overwhelmed. Now, a lot of people it happens each and every week because we know we have a whole nother week to go through. It can feel overwhelming and we get overwhelmed. Our stress response is triggered and we go into freeze. Now, I have a couple of tidbits and ways to help. And this is the reason that you scrolling through social media isn't helping. And the reason social media as a whole is not helpful is it doesn't cause us to move our bodies. And I know that sounds really weird, but when our stress response is triggered, our system sends all of this energy, for lack of a better term, you can if you want me to get nerdy with it, I can do that. Just let me know in the comments. But our nervous system triggers our amygdala and our limbic system and causes us to go into that fight flight response, right? Which gears us up and readies us to take action. When we don't take any action and instead, you know, our thumb is the only thing moving or maybe our pointer finger, if we do it that way, we scroll, that energy just circulates within our body and causes us symptoms of anxiety and overwhelm and in essence, because we aren't fight or flighting, right? Our stress response readied us for those things. It goes into the other opportunity for it, which is freeze. And especially if we have trauma in our past, we can almost be predisposed to go into freeze because we're so used to it. Like it's that knee jerk reaction. If freeze happens, the best thing we can do is move. Now I know you're saying, but Katie, I'm frozen. Like I can't. I want you just white knuckle this for me. Give this a try and let me know if it helps because this I find to be incredibly helpful. Stand up and shake out. 
Now, if you can't, if you're like, I don't want to stand up, I'm too tired, I just want to sit here, I want you to kick your legs out, you know, flail them around. I want you to move your body, shake your arms out. Almost like somebody just sprayed you with water and you're like, oh, I have to get that off of my body. Do that because what that does is it triggers a release of energy in our nervous system and essentially helps it soothe. And I know it sounds really weird and you think, well, that's not really going to work. I am living proof that it works. I will get those anxious feelings at night when I lay down to go to sleep where I'm like, oh my God, did I do all the things I needed to do? Oh, I didn't call my mom. Shit, I didn't call my mom back. Oh, I need to make sure that I pick up paper towels. We're almost out of those. Like all those swirling, did I, should I, what's my to-do list thoughts will not slow down and it can prevent me from going to sleep for like hours. And so I shake out and I cannot tell you how helpful it is. Another thing that can help if you're able to get up is to change the temperature. Meaning if it's hot outside, go outside. If it's if heat makes you feel more overwhelmed, which is usually the case, but everybody's different. I want you to take a wash rag, put it in ice water, and then throw it onto your face or lay it on the back of your neck. And I know, again, those things sound weird, but those are all kind of like grounding techniques to pull us out of that freeze state. If you didn't know, dissociation is also part of freeze, which is why grounding stuff like that kind of helps. Those are the things that I want you to try to do. And that's just from a logistical, I'm in freeze, what do I do kind of advice. But when it comes to Sunday scaries, I find that we pack our weekends with too much shit. And so I want you to take some time. Like this week, I don't need you to change anything, but I just want you to pay attention to what you do on your weekday evenings to help you out. Like on your way home, do you swing by the grocery store or drop off things at the post office or pick up dry cleaning or get, the, you know, fill up your gas tank? Like the things that we might do on the weekend, can we put one of those things on the weekdays, right? So just pay attention to what you're doing during each weekday. That's like a home thing and what you're saving for the weekend. And then I want you to break the weekend into Saturdays and Sundays, because if we're putting too much stuff like laundry, meal prepping, um, changing our sheets, you know, doing all these things around the house all on Sunday, then Sunday is not a fun day. Of course, we don't want to get up. Of course, we're pushing to our stress response. It's too much for us to accomplish. And so I want you to pay attention to that. Make your list of the things that you expect yourself to do. And then I want you to spread those things out. I have talked about this in the past, but I think it's worth re, like repeating. One of my best self-care hacks is to do things for future Katie. Now, that means that if Katie today has extra time, like my day today isn't that crazily packed, but I know I've been stressing about this book proposal I'm putting together. I'm going to work on that this afternoon because I actually have time for it. Now, technically, it's not in my schedule until Thursday. But Katie, today, this I'm filming this ahead of time. Katie on Monday has extra time. So Monday, Katie's doing a favor for Thursday, Katie. Does that make sense? Like if tonight I have a little extra time and I can run that load of laundry, I'm going to run one load of laundry. One load doesn't seem overwhelming. Four loads does seem overwhelming, right? Doing things for future us or even scheduling, if this is something we can afford, scheduling groceries to be delivered, right? Paying that extra tip or whatever, like let's say $10. If that helps us out and future us feels better and more oh, soothed, then maybe we do that because we want we don't want to cause more anxiety for future us. We want us to feel soothed. So it's really 
doing things like that can kind of help. And it's going to, we're going to have to learn about it. Like I said, pay attention first before you try to make any change, but you can do those body shakes and temperature changes right away. And then we'll just kind of spread out our to-dos. And also just a random tip, I find having something fun planned on Sunday morning, like a friend and I are going to meet at the dog park and bring our dogs, or we're going to go have brunch, or I'm going to take myself out to lunch and sit in that new place I've been wanting to try, right? If we can have a little fun thing always going on our Sundays, then Sunday won't seem like such a shitty day. Or we can even have a reward on Monday for getting through Sunday and that can help us stay motivated. Those are all kind of tips and tools and ways that we can keep ourselves going. But just know that you're not alone in this Sunday scaries type of feeling, but we can do things to make ourselves feel better. Now, there was a comment on this, like about the, um, like I said, the stopping of social media and like, how do we keep it away from it? Like, so it's not a distraction from all the things we should and could do. I would use social media instead of allowing, and I know it's going to take some white knuckling, but instead of allowing ourselves to jump right into it, I want you to use it as a reward. Okay. So if I finish two loads of laundry, then I can spend 30 minutes on social media. And then I encourage you to set a timer because those 30 minutes, they go by like that. And we forget and we can get caught in a rabbit hole. Trust me, I'm no better than you. I get in TikTok spirals and I'll be like, I'll just watch one or two. An hour goes by, I'm still in it. It's not good for any of us. So setting that alarm will at least trigger. If you're able to stop or not, that's kind of up to you and your own willpower and ability to put it away, do another thing, use it again as a reward. Um, And it's going to take some practice, but that's honestly the best way. Instead of allowing yourself to jump right into it, like don't get on it first thing in the morning. I encourage you to not. I know it can be difficult, but don't allow you to, to just get in it first thing. Use it as a reward throughout your day, since it's something that you probably like to do and you enjoy and you want to check in and we're not going to delete our profiles or get off it completely. We don't want all or nothing black and white. Just use it as a reward during your breaks and set timers. And so if you're at an actual like office and you get your 15 minute breaks or 30 minute break or your hour lunch or whatever, set timers so that you don't waste that whole time just on social media or you don't forget that you need to go back to your desk and get more work done. Um, Setting those limits and using it kind of as a reward, I find is, is much better. And that will stop us from just like scrolling for no reason. Um. Another comment says, additionally, I wondered if what I am experiencing was anxiety as well, because at the moment I'm unable to write. I can't do it for school and not even as a hobby, although I always loved to do it. It's just that I feel completely overwhelmed as if in every fiber of my body is fighting against doing these very things. And I immediately search for something distracting like my mobile phone to start scrolling. Is this anxiety and how can I start doing it? Because I need to get my work done. Hmm. Could be anxiety. The, the feeling of overwhelm, I think, is something a lot of us are experiencing lately. And I would encourage you to try to apply some of the things that I talked about before regarding Sunday scaries, but this can still just be in your daily life, like doing a brain dump of all the things that we feel we need to accomplish can help us see what's spinning in our mind. And then we can, you know, schedule out time to accomplish those things. Remember, our to-do list should never be more than seven things long because seven things is the amount that we can hold in our brain at the all at once. And that's why phone numbers minus the area code are seven digits because it's something that our brains can easily recall. Just random fact. Anyway, keeping, you know, keeping track or at least noting the things that you're expecting yourself to do can be helpful. We can kind of see why we may be feeling overwhelmed. 
then we can schedule it out and accomplish those things. But from what it sounds like to me is the overwhelm could be anxiety, but it sounds more like depression. Whenever we used to like to do something and now we just can't or we don't enjoy it, I guess is more the, and I don't know if that's the case, but when it's like, we don't enjoy that thing. So we can't, we just don't want to do it anymore. And the motivation to do it seems impossible to come by. That's depression. Wanting to do something, enjoying it, but feeling so overwhelmed that even getting into it is impossible. That could be more anxiety. You have to remember depression is when we don't enjoy things that we used to enjoy and we have kind of a low depressed mood for most days lasting, you know, almost all day for at least two weeks. And then anxiety is when we have uncontrollable worry and we've tried everything to try to make it better and it just be, it is out of control, right? So we worry about the what ifs. What if this happens? What if that person's thinking badly about me? What if I can't get out of here when I need to? What if, what if, what if, what if? And that can spin us into, you know, panic attacks, feeling overwhelmed. We can become sweaty and overheated because our, our nervous system kicks up. So that's kind of the difference. And you'd have to assess based on what I said there in symptoms, symptom wise, what you're experiencing. But it sounds like you always loved to do it. And I don't know if you love it anymore. So I don't know if that's depression, but the the distracting that you're going for and the reason you reach for that phone is because of that feeling of overwhelm. And instead of tapping out, I encourage you to tap in. So be curious about this, how, you know, like I said, take stock of what you, what you're expecting yourself to do. So you can see why you're feeling this kind of overwhelm. Try the body shakes, Uh, reach out to a professional, having someone we can just vent to about the things that are going on helps us not feel so alone and so overwhelmed. And so I really think if you if you're wanting to write and you feel unable, instead of trying to write and keep trying to do that, it's only going to become more frustrating. Let's instead try to tackle the real reason behind it, meaning where did this come from? How long has it lasted? And can we try some other tools and techniques and ways to calm us down? Like it sounds weird, but can we do the body shake? Can we go for a walk? Can we connect with someone we love? All of those things are very soothing. Can I put a cold rag on my neck? Do those things help? Um and if not, maybe I need to reach out to a professional, maybe what it is, you know, the depression or anxiety I'm experiencing, I need more support with that. Because the more we just go back and keep trying something that isn't working and expecting it to magically change, the worse we're going to feel about our situation. I want you to feel empowered, not hopeless. And so let's try it from that angle first, if that makes sense. I hope that helps. Let's move on to question number two. This question says, Why does it seem harder to acknowledge certain traumas versus others? Great question. I went to therapy to deal with past childhood sexual abuse, but in doing so learned about emotional neglect. My family life seems so normal and standard and to believe otherwise is hard to wrap my head around. Believing that my parents failed me as a child goes against my whole belief system. It causes me to second guess and doubt myself. Why uh, Why is it so much harder to acknowledge And what do you do about it? For a little background, we would be viewed as your typical middle-class family. We had everything we needed physically, but emotions were not exactly accepted. Most often they were viewed as overreacting, being disrespectful, or just told to suck it up. My parents also tended to argue and bicker a lot. So you never knew what was going on with them. Um, Oh, you never knew when going to them, if they would be open to listen or going to explode at you because they were already angry. They were very unpredictable. 
because of that, I couldn't trust or rely on how they would respond about the childhood sexual abuse. And thus I kept it a secret. I kept myself quiet, stayed out of the way and essentially made myself the invisible child. Don't be seen. Don't cause waves. Don't disappoint. When traumas, first of all, I'm sorry that you went through that. Not only the abuse, but the neglect. And I mean, neglect is abuse, but I, since you're talking about two separate instances and situations, I want, I'm so sorry that you had to deal with that. The reason that it's more difficult for us to acknowledge some traumas is not all traumas leave marks. I did a red table talk recently and I forget which woman that was interviewing me mentioned this, but she was uh, referencing how, you know, her, her dad, I think had said, well, uh, I never hit you. So like, like essentially referencing the fact that because it didn't hit them, that they were like a great father. And she was like, it would have been much easier if you had, because then I could have easily acknowledged this is wrong and I'm being abused. Instead, it was emotional neglect. It was the, it's not okay for you to feel that way. It's not okay for you to express that. It's not okay to take up space and be a person in this world, right? We're kind of told that we have to shut it down. Like you said, suck it up or you're being disrespectful. I can I can't think of a worse thing for a parent to say to a child than your emotions and your experience with life is disrespectful. I can understand if you put your parent down or cuss at them or, you know, tell them to suck it up. I can see that as being disrespectful. But emotions themselves and our response to our world is not that. And I'm sorry you got such mixed and abusive messaging. Now, it's the lack of those wounds that are visible that makes it difficult. It makes it easy for us to second guess, not to mention the fact that trauma always comes along with our our three best friends, shame, guilt, and embarrassment. And if you don't know the differences between these, shame is when we believe that something's innately wrong with us, right? Like I'm broken in some way. I think the most common way I see shame playing out like directly is when one of my patients or a member of our community will mention that they, you know, they were abused as a child. And then I wound up in this toxic relationship. Like what's wrong with me? Do I have a like, please traumatize me sign on my back? Right. We have some kind of thought like that. Like, why does shit like this keep happening? What's wrong with me? That's shame. Something's broken inside of me. And that's why I deserve this kind of treatment. Now, guilt is when what we feel for something we've done wrong. So if we believe, and you can see how these play into each other, if we believe something's wrong and we're broken on the inside, right? Something's wrong with me. Then I feel guilty for all the pain that I've caused other people whether it's my fault or not, because I believe I'm the broken one, right? So everything I touch is broken because I'm faulty. So then I look out and I'm like, oh my God, I'm so sorry for taking up space. I'm so sorry for for bothering you with, with my problems. I'm so sorry for, I'm so sorry, so sorry. We, it's like that fawn response in the fight, flight, freeze or fawn, that extreme people pleasing that comes along with trauma. That's born out of the shame, guilt. And then we're moving to our third, which is embarrassment. And that can be, it can happen for a lot of reasons, but embarrassment overall is when we we almost cannot tolerate emotionally what has taken place. And we feel, I'm trying to think of a better word, but we don't want other people to know about it. We hate that it happened. And there's some part of us that's ashamed that that happened. And you can see how these three work in tandem together to like 
make us feel terrible. And then that can make us second guess whether something that happened to us was actually abuse at all. And neglect is the hardest, right? Because it's abuse by subtraction, meaning there's nothing added to our world. Unless there's like, it sounds like your parents might have been, uh, there might have been some emotional abuse, like verbal abuse. But the neglect is so tricky because it's what wasn't there. And it's harder to sometimes acknowledge or point out the things that are missing than it is to point out the things that shouldn't be there, right? Sexual abuse, physical abuse, emotional abuse, the things that we might be able to see or hear more more readily. So that's really why it's harder to acknowledge. It's easier for us to question and we already question in general. I can't tell you how many of my patients have said um, minimizing or invalidating things about their trauma, no matter what it was. Like, I think I'm just making it into a bigger deal or they'll try to compare. You know, other people have had it worse. Like there's people, you know, who were physically abused or sexually abused their whole childhood. We try to look at, out at others and think like, well, it wasn't that bad. You know, my parents, I guess they kind of loved me, but so often our parents, you know, did all they could, but they weren't there for us. Meaning our emotions weren't okay. We couldn't come to them for support because they weren't warm. They didn't show up in the way we needed. They didn't hold us when we cried maybe, or they weren't available, right? Especially parents who worked a lot. That can be really hard. Emotional neglect is very common when our parents work a lot. As I've had a lot of patients in the past whose parents had them, they were raised by a nanny. And that comes along with its own level of emotional neglect. If our parents didn't come home from work or spend time on the weekends and are like check in on us, really? Like, how are you doing? How is school? Let me know how your friends are doing. Are you feeling like your teacher listens to you? Um, you know, do you want to have that new friend over? Like any of that parent check-in stuff. If they don't do that, then we're not getting it, right? I hope that that helps and I hope that that makes sense, but I think it's kind of important to understand what trauma does to us and that shame, guilt, and embarrassment can really do a number on us. Let's move on to question number three. This question says, hi, Katie, happy Thursday. My question is about bursts of emotions. When something happens that seems to emotionally affect me, I only seem to feel that feeling for a very short time. For example, when I feel sad, I cry for about 10 seconds max. Wow, that's quick after which I stop myself. I don't know whether I actually only feel sad for that short amount of time or if I just stuff everything down again. I think you're stuffing, but we'll get into that. Same goes for happiness or gratitude. I feel a warm, fuzzy feeling for like five seconds and then nothing again. In general, I mostly feel numb. I live with DPDR, which is depersonalization, derealization, and complex PTSD. Do you have any ideas on why these short emotion bursts might be occurring? And how do I let myself actually feel things better? Thanks for all that you do. Love from Holland. This is a great question and it's incredibly common. Now, these bursts of emotions are happening essentially because we're having emotions and we're probably all filled up with them. And so when something triggers it, we our body innately wants to react to it. It wants to have an emotional expression. However, our DPDR slash trauma brain shuts that shit down. It's like, absolutely not. All emotions are too much. They're not okay. And I can't trust them. Shut it down. That's why it's so short-lived. Like 10, five seconds, that's not much time at all. And so that's why they're happening. Because it's still triggering. Like our body wants to express emotion. It wants to identify, not necessarily identify. That would be like a, a stretch because that's more of a like 
mental capacity and emotional intelligence thing. Our body innately reacts to situations, right? Like um, if I'm like when my best friend just got married and I'm watching it happen and I can't help but cry. Am I sad? No. Am I happy? Yes. Do I understand why tears happen at that? I don't, but I couldn't help it. It was just my, my own bodily, like my bodily response to this lovely event, right? Now, in order to allow yourself to feel things, we're going to have to start at a place that might seem a little weird, but because you mostly feel numb and that's incredibly common, especially with DPDR and especially with PTSD, we're going to need to do some mindfulness techniques. Now I know that sucks and we can start kind of more somatically, meaning like in your body. I'm going to give you a couple of tools and techniques and things that could help you get back in touch because we're probably completely disconnected. I want you to start in the shower. I want you to, if you have a handheld shower sprayer thingy, get one or pick it up on Amazon for like 30 bucks, I think. If not, you can move your body around under the water. And I want you to feel the water hitting your fingers and your hands up your arm. And you can stop at your shoulder. I don't want to trigger you too much, especially because of your complex trauma. And then do your other hand. I want you to feel it hit your pointer finger, your middle finger, your ring finger, your pinky finger, your thumb. I want you to just tap in. Then let it hit your feet. Can you feel the warm water on your feet? Take just a couple of minutes to try to feel things on your body. Or if that's too hard when you're in the shower, maybe if you put lotion on after, can you feel the different parts, your elbow and your forearm? Can we feel our feet and our calves? Can we feel ourselves put that lotion on? Now I know you're thinking, Katie, this has nothing to do with feelings. This is like, what are you doing? Why am I, why am I even trying to do this? This shutdown is coming from our disconnect. And so what I'm trying to do is trying to trigger a reconnection because our body and our brain are inextricably linked. But when it comes to trauma, especially when we have, you know, depersonalization, derealization as a result, we disconnect from things, meaning our emotion mind or our brain is disconnected from our body, which is why when you experience something bodily, you experience an emotion in your body, making tears come out of your eyes or making you feel this warm, fuzzy feeling, it immediately is like, nope, disconnect again. So I want to reconnect that. So we can start with those types of, that's a great way to start. Another is to do what they call, I want to, it's in DBT and I think they call it like the, the white light or the circle light. Essentially, imagine a circle big enough to go around your entire body and it starts right above your head and you can feel the heat of it a little bit. Or if it, if heat is overwhelming, then you can try, you can feel the cool air. Imagine like an ice circle. Okay. And this circle goes from the top of your head to the bottom of your feet, super, super slow. And as you imagine this light going over your body, I want you to tap in. How do you, how does it feel on your scalp? Do you feel it across your face and hit your nose? What about on your chin and your shoulders, right? And go through your entire body. It helps sometimes to lay down and do this. Um, I also, in my anxiety workbook, which you can purchase on my, my website, I want to say, I think it's 20 bucks or 25 bucks. I do a progressive muscle relaxation video where I walk you through. That might be beneficial for you. But that kind of white light exercise can help us tap back in. And so I want you to slowly start doing things where you're paying more attention to your body. Another easy way, unless there's eating disorders present, is to check in with hunger fullness. 
Like when you wake up in the morning and you're hungry for breakfast, I want you to notice on a scale of one to 10, how hungry am I? Hmm. What sounds good? What would I like to have? Again, if we have an eating disorder that like, do not do that unless you're seeing a therapist, that can be extremely triggering and difficult. But if you don't, that's just yet another way to tap into your body and recognize all the things it's telling you. Now, from there, we can do that for a few weeks, but I feel like let's just start with that. The next steps would be to start writing about our emotions, like jotting down one or two a day. That's it. Do that for a little bit, then maybe get up to three or four. Stop at five. There's no need for you to track more than that right now. And explain what that emotion feels like, not using the emotion word. So let's say it's like happiness. I want you to explain what happiness feels like. It feels like a breath in lightness or warm. You said warm and fuzzy. It feels very warm and fuzzy. Um, I can't help but smile. It makes me relax, right? What is it like? Tell me. So that that's kind of the work that I would want you to focus on. And that will be the way for these bursts of emotions to not occur. The thing that people are always scared about is, oh, if I tap into my emotions, they're going to drown me. I won't be able to get out of them. And really what I'm here to tell you, the truth is, They might feel overwhelming at first because we haven't experienced them at all, but it's so much better to experience them in the moment or relatively short, you know, shortly thereafter than it is to have them pop out of nowhere and ruin our day, right? Feel like they're in control of us because they will come out like our emotions, our experiences, our, our trauma or whatever is going to get out. I would just prefer, I think, as all of us would, that I get to decide when that happens and it doesn't just happen to me. Like I'm in an important business meeting and I have a flashback or I'm my friend, you know, is getting married and I just can't stop sobbing, right? Those things can be very embarrassing and very overwhelming. And instead allowing ourselves to feel and acknowledge and tap in, then we're in control of when and we don't feel so run by our emotions. We can say, oh, you know, I can acknowledge what I'm feeling is just like excitement and warmth and love. And I want to cry about it because it's so beautiful. I can acknowledge that, let it happen. Like, I think I probably cried for like, let's say 10 minutes. And then I was like, okay, and I'm kind of tired. I'm ready to stop. And that's a better place to be in than feeling like they get to pop out whenever. There was a comment on this as I feel this. And as an add-on, This happens to me as well, but I don't really cry. I have a very strong reaction where I'll feel like crying or screaming. And sometimes I'll even smack myself in the head or just clench my hands and think, I can't do this. But it only lasts a few minutes. And then I basically tell myself, get my shit together. And then there are no more emotions. I've started therapy in this last year and have been diagnosed with anxiety, FYI. Thanks for all you do. Yes, same advice as I gave to the first portion of the question. You're shutting it down and disconnected. I might encourage you hmm, to do the things I said first, but then if there's a way to trigger a crying episode, like a favorite movie or TV show, like Grey's Anatomy always makes me cry, but also uh, Under the Tuscan Sun was a film that used to always make me cry. That, what is it, Mr. Rogers, that documentary? Man, I cried in a plane watching that. So if you can trigger that with something like that, songs, I would encourage you to set aside some time for your cry and let it happen. And then I journal about what, what that was like, if you can let it happen. But again, we're going to get back in touch with our body a little bit more and do some of the work that I mentioned earlier on. But I think for you, that might be like the next step. Now there's another one that says add on. 
I also had outbursts when I was deep in my depression. I, however, couldn't stop but was rather overwhelmed by it. I haven't had depression symptoms in over a year and I'm still a lot more emotional than I ever was. Will it go away? I mean, I cry because of nearly anything nowadays, like cat commercials or when people do something nice, but it's a bit annoying, to be honest. Before, not even movies made me cry. This is interesting. And I have a feeling something else is going on. I don't know if you're in therapy, but I experience this personally where when I'm overwhelmed, stressed out, overworked, or just going through a tough time, I'm super tearful. Feeling super tearful, I feel like is the same, even though it's on the flip of the being shut down and not having any emotions. Because again, we don't have any control over them. They're controlling us. And so I guess my encouragement for you would be to look into seeing a therapist And then if you let yourself really cry, like cry it out, don't try to shut it down because I'm curious if you're trying to shut it down a little bit and that's why it keeps popping up. But if we allow ourselves to cry it out, like set aside a day where you don't have to do anything, let's trigger a big cry. You can cry for an hour if you can. Usually around 20 minutes or 30, we kind of lose our oomph and we get real tired. I'm curious if that feels better for you, if if you allow it. I'd like you to journal about what comes up for you and if that feels good or bad. Um, and maybe you have some judgments around it or not. And yeah, let's see where that comes from. Because I I know depression symptoms, people think like, oh, you're depressed, so you're sad and you cry. Not always. A lot of my depressed patients won't let themselves cry. We just have this like low mood and this overall like feeling of no motivation, no enjoyment, right? It's like, uh, almost we're, we are kind of numbed out. And so I wonder if the depression was numbing you from your real emotions and now we're feeling a little overwhelmed and maybe trying to stuff them down again. It will go away. I want you to know it will go away, but it's also okay to be an emotional person. I think we have this judgment around being sensitive. I'm not saying that that's what's happening here, but I want you to know it is okay to, to cry and be, I'm a crier, I'm emotional. It's okay to be that way, but we have to figure out where it's coming from for you here. So I would be curious. I would give yourself a big cry. See if that helps. I would journal about what it feels like before and after because we have to learn. We have to figure out again where this is coming from and it's not going to be an easy, I can't just give you the answer, but we're feeling full for some reason and we need to find a way to let that out. That could be even like I was talking about earlier, that could be getting connected with your body, possibly. That could be doing body shakes. That could be just in therapy, having a place to vent. Uh, That helps me. That takes the edge off for me. If I'm feeling extra tearful, going into therapy and speaking with my therapist is incredibly beneficial because then I have a place to go and cry for like 50 minutes and then it doesn't feel so heavy anymore. I'm not like alone with it. And that might be what you need too. So let's explore some of those options and we'll find out what helps. Let me know. Let's move on to question number four. This question says, hi, Katie, do you think therapy works for everyone? I have alexithymia and I struggle so much with expressing emotions and knowing what I'm feeling. That is what alexithymia is, is like an inability to express or acknowledge emotions. I can tell my my psychologist gets frustrated with me and she says therapy doesn't work for everyone, which took me by surprise. Yeah. My question is, do you think therapy works for everyone? How do you deal with clients who have alexithymia? Thanks so much. What a great question. Yes, therapy works for everyone, but not the same therapy. We call it modalities, essentially like the style of therapy, meaning that talk therapy, just the 
I almost feel like the vanilla kind where you go in, you talk about things. There's not really a focus structure or homework. Or maybe there is, maybe it's cognitive behavioral or dialectical behavior therapy. That's still, you know, very talk focused and identifying emotions. Maybe that's not the jam for you. You might want more somatic experiencing, like getting connected with your body. Can we do that? Maybe EMDR would be more beneficial. Maybe, um, I mean, a schema and stuff, I wonder if that it might be helpful for you. Even family systems, right? How everybody kind of worked together in your, like those things might be more helpful for you than being in traditional talk therapy and being told to just try to identify your emotions. Cause you're like, dude, I can't like n- nothing you say is like, I can't, it's, it's, I have alexithymia. So I would encourage you to seek out other types of treatment. I would avoid because of alexithymia, I'd avoid just basic talk therapy. I'd also avoid uh, cognitive behavioral or CBT. I'd also avoid DBT, dialectical behavior therapy. You guys know I love that, but I don't think it's the appropriate one for this. I might look into EMDR, somatic experiencing, um, and maybe even attachment-based therapy. And that's that one might not work, but part of me wonders where this comes from. And I'm wondering if there maybe even like trauma and I wonder if that's what led to the alexithymia. Anyway. But those are the things that I would try, different treatment modalities, because yes, therapy works for everyone, but not every style of therapy is going to work for you or for me, right? We have to find what works best for us. There's a comment on this says, I was thinking of asking a very similar question. Is it sometimes best to just stop therapy because the constant trying and needing to feel better actually makes things worse? I feel like maybe if I stopped going and stopped trying so hard to get better, that I might stop that I may stop thinking so much and begin to feel better. Your thoughts. I think that if we're in a therapy setting for a couple of months, like two, three months, and we don't feel like we're getting any benefit, we don't feel better. We feel exhausted. We just keep trying and needing to get better and we don't feel better. I don't think that that therapy alone or maybe that therapy style is right for you or maybe that therapist. We might need medication or additional support through, I mean, it depends on what we're working on. If we're working on an eating disorder, we might want a nutritionist. We might want group therapy. If we're looking for support, let's say we've survived domestic violence or a trauma um, from childhood, or um, we're grieving anything, right? We can get into a group. We could see a psychiatrist, get medication. We could see our regular doctor to make sure that we don't have low vitamin D and everything else is we're going to need supplemental things happening because what we're trying isn't working. Now, yes, therapy is hard. It's a lot of hard work, but we shouldn't continue to feel bad all the time. We should have a few wins here and there, and we should at least feel like heard and understood and that validation from our therapist should help us feel better. Like, I think every therapist knows this. You can go into sessions and really challenge your patients, but then you have to lay off, like take your foot off the gas for maybe the next session or the session after that to kind of give a little reprieve, um, a little, not just clarity, but like the ability to look back and be like, look at all we've come through. And and we really worked hard the other day and just kind of reflect on that. And maybe you're not getting that. Maybe they're going too much too fast. I would tell your therapist that you're feeling this way and then be open to being curious about it. Like I said, it could be that you you know need medication or more supplemental support. 
Maybe it's the type of therapy. Maybe it's the therapist. Maybe, you know, it's the relationship that you have with that therapist. I don't know. But be open to being curious and not judgmental about it. We'll figure it out. Those are just some of my thoughts. I do believe that therapy is always beneficial, but we have to be feeling the benefit with the person. And that means we have to put our effort in too. But I, I, if you feel like you're just trying and trying and trying and trying and it's not getting any better, then we have to consider other reasons why, right? Like the therapist, the style of therapy, maybe we need medication or other support, you know, something like that. But yes, I don't think it's good to just stop therapy because we're exhausted from it. But I do think it is completely reasonable to try something different. Okay. Let's move on to question number five. This question says, hey, Katie, I often lose focus on what my therapist is saying during my therapy sessions. Most often it's because of different thoughts about things that cause me a lot of anxiety. For example, during a session, my therapist talked and explained that emotions can be evoked by thoughts, but that thoughts can be evoked by emotions. Mm -hmm. He gives me an example of how this works and the feeling in his example is fear. Okay. My brain then connects us to a situation where I've been extremely scared. My roommate in the psychiatric ward had tried to hang herself while I was in the room trying to sleep and I wake up and I get her down. I completely lose focus on what my therapist says next. I try to concentrate, but my thoughts keep going back to that event. I fight the anxiety. I feel frozen. I struggle to breathe and I often realize afterwards how tense I am in my whole body. I can only take it in short bits of the conversation, or I can only take in short bits of the conversation, but it's hard to put the pieces together and understand what he's saying and what is happening. Is this dissociation or just anxiety? Where does the line between severe anxiety and dissociation or where, where goes the line? Also, how do I show when it happens? I've talked to my therapist about it happening, but he says that I'm very good at hiding it because he doesn't notice it at all. Uh Uh-oh. Instead, he has started asking now and then if I'm still present, but when I'm too anxious to hear and understand him, I can't even admit it because I'm ashamed and I can't maintain presence. So I lie and say that I'm still following with a smile. I've not told him about the lying yet, but I will. This happens all the time, even though we don't talk about difficult things. I get easily overwhelmed. So we are taking everything very slowly. Most often it is memories that are related to the suicide attempt, but other memories can make that the same thing happen. I lose focus and miss bits of what we're talking about. What can I do to stop it? And how do I show my therapist that I'm overwhelmed with anxiety? How do I stop my body from hiding the anxiety? Okay. It sounds like you're get, you're extremely triggered by certain things, especially that like trauma is coming up and you're easily triggered. And what I would say is happening is you're you could be becoming extremely anxious. The way to know if it's dissociation or not is because it sounds like it's dissociation what's happening. And here's why. You lose focus and you have no idea what he's talking about. Like he's just like, oh, and I don't know. Because dissociation is when we become so overwhelmed, our nervous system becomes so emotionally triggered that we remove ourselves from the environment. So it can feel like we're watching everything play out like a movie or we remove move ourselves, like our focus or our uh, consciousness from ourself. So it's like, I'm like almost watching myself do things like through third person, almost like it can feel very bizarre. We can feel very spaced out, very clouded. I've had patients say it can feel really slow and hazy. Other people say that it just feels like you just like can't reach what's happening. You have no control over what you're saying or doing, which can be kind of scary and also overwhelming. 
Some people say it's very relaxing because they prefer to feel kind of checked out emotionally. Whatever the case is, what's happening for you, I believe is dissociation. And the reason it's happening is because you're becoming overwhelmed. You're triggered in some way. Now, the triggering could be because of things your therapist is saying or doing, or it could be because your brain is like, hey, I want to work on this. Hey, I want to talk through this trauma of my our roommate trying to take their own life. We should bring this up with our therapist like about this trauma if we haven't already and letting them know that we're dissociating. Okay. Now, the line between anxiety and dissociation is that being able to stay present. So, Anxiety doesn't remove us from ourself or our environment. Anxiety is like palms sweaty, heart racing, can't focus, thoughts are going a million miles a minute. And so the fact that you call it focus, that's what you'd have to tell me what it feels like because there is some overlap and extreme anxiety can cause dissociation. So I have a ton of videos about anxiety, but we can feel all of that racing stuff and it just feels like it builds and builds and builds. And it's Anxiety is all about worry. Like I'm worried that something I'm going to faint. I'm worried I'm going to die. I'm worried I'm going to pass out and I'm going to embarrass myself. I'm worried that uh, he's not going to believe me. I'm worried, you know, it's, it's essentially that and it builds and builds and builds. Dissociation is like, could lead, like let's say our anxiety is building and then boom, we pull the ripcord. Our brain's like, that's too much for us. I'm out of there. And we feel pulled away from ourself, our environment. Does that make sense? So anxiety can lead to it but they're different because of the fact that dissociation is like we've reached peak overwhelm. Anxiety can live in the space leading up to it. And it's like all the other symptoms I mentioned. Okay. I hope that helps. Now, uh, how do I show your therapist when this is happening? My best advice would be to try out some grounding techniques. We need to stomp our feet. We need to, like I said, have a cold, like something to change the temperature because a cold rag on the back of our necks does wonders. We needed to let our therapist know that we need some of those things. Maybe a silly putty or a fidget toy helps. We can count colors in the room. Um, My best advice to you would be to look back at the last time this happened and see if you can notice when it's the earliest signs that is happening. Because once we're in it, we can't, like you said, I can't tell him, well, it's too late. So he can't really check in because he doesn't know you that well yet. He hasn't noticed when you stop making eye contact or your muscles start to tense, or maybe you don't show any of those. Those are usually the signs I look for in a lot of my patients. Um, although one of my patients will start twirling her hair in this one spot. So everybody's a little different, but he doesn't know you that well yet or hasn't picked up on those things. And so it's up to you to try to identify earlier on and then have a signal. Now, for one of my patients, the signal was they'd push the pillow away on the couch or another one would cross her arms. Um, If there's a signal that you can give, I would encourage you to try to figure out how to do that, what that could be and tell your therapist about it. Cause we're going to have to work around you. I know it sounds kind of weird. So you're like, but I'm signaling to my own thing. Yeah. Because he can't tell when it's happening. And by the time it is happening, you can't speak about it. So we might have to have a signal. And my encouragement for you is to figure out what it feels like in your body earlier on. Meaning, do we start to have our thoughts race? Do our palms get really sweaty? Do we get really hot or cold? Um, do we start to like want to I don't know, curl up on the couch. Do we have a shift in our seat? Are we uncomfortable all of a sudden? How does it go for you? What's the process? And the sooner we can start identifying those signs and symptoms, the sooner we can do something about it. 
And so that would be my encouragement is to try that and see if that works. Because as you work more and more with your therapist, he will get to know you better and be able to hopefully identify that for you and check in on you. But we need to figure out what you can do to give the signal and what he can do to help bring you back. Is him putting a hand on your back okay or super triggering? I don't know. Everybody's different. Could he go get a cold uh, paper towel and give it to you and put it on your forehead or on the back of your neck? Um, Could you have a fidget toy? All those things. Could we stomp our feet or, you know, can you move or not? Those are all things that I would encourage you to talk to him about, figure out, and your homework is to to identify some of the signs and symptoms earlier on. Because that's the problem is once we get too far into dissociation or anxiety, we're like immobile. And so then we can't express, we can't, we're shut down. And that's like the dissociation. We pull the ripcord, we're out, peace out. We can't even, you know, communicate often. So that's my advice. Um, we aren't going to be able to stop our body from hiding anxiety. That's just adaptive. It's something that a lot of us can do. The fact that we can be really, really anxious and come across incredibly calm. It's it's helpful in life in some ways. And so that's why your body is able to do it. But we can learn more about it for ourselves, what it, the experience feels like. And then we can take action to, you know, let our therapist know. Okay. I hope that helps. Let's move on to question number six. This question says, hi, Katie. I was wondering if you could talk a bit about bulimia and whether in your experience, patients are more reluctant to share that they are struggling with it. Hmm, Good question. I find there's a big stigma attached to it and people are disgusted by it. The recovery content online is largely people who struggle with anorexia. I guess I'm curious about what kind of questions a therapist would usually ask or how they would check in on if a patient is struggling with it. I found my therapist wasn't judgmental but also didn't really discuss it. And just telling her felt massive. So I don't feel that I can bring it up again, but I'm really struggling with it. Any advice? Thank you. Of course, tons of advice. Okay. So yeah, bulimia. I don't know if I think there's a big stigma attached to it when it comes to actual professionals, like on the therapist side in the way that we talk about borderline personality disorder or BPD. But I do think that for some reason within the recovery community as a whole, and the eating disorder community, I guess, as a whole, there tends to be this like hierarchy where people think one eating disorder is better or more intense or whatever than another. And I'm here to tell you, they're all terrible. They all ruin your relationships, your body, make things harder for you, ruin your focus, heart muscles, you know, potassium levels, you name it. We can also, if we're a binge eater, we can find ourselves dealing with things like high blood pressure, diabetes, uh, all sorts of issues, issues with mobility. Okay. When it comes to bulimia, I find my patients have their own judgment about it because of the shame and embarrassment that they feel about the behaviors. Now, for anybody out there who doesn't know what bulimia is, this means that we will eat more than a normal person would in a short amount of time. So we binge. So this could mean in like 30 minutes, we eat, you know, what someone would eat in five days or something or one day. And everyone's binge is going to be different. So we binge and whatever that looks like for us. And then the thing that makes it bulimia and not binge eating disorder is we do what's known as compensatory behaviors. Now, we can purge through exercise where we overexercise. So even though, you know, we ate, maybe we didn't actually throw up the food. We can go for our long run, way too long, walk, 
hike, whatever. Spinning class after spinning class, there was this girl um, at the treatment center years and years ago. She wasn't my patient, but she, you know, would take like back-to-back classes as a way to cope. We can use laxatives. We can purge through vomiting um, and initiate that ourselves. There's a lot of different things that we can do to, you know, quote unquote, rid ourselves of the food. Many of my patients, I think, are embarrassed by that activity. Now, the exercise, not so much, but the the vomiting and the, you know, laxative abuse, yes. And a lot of shame, like I said, and just, you know, embarrassment around, it, especially if it's laxative abuse, because we think of like pooping, nobody wants to talk about pooping, and it can be very embarrassing. And people don't want to mention it, and they can have a difficult time. Now, we probably should talk about it more, and maybe... I'll put on my list, you know, like a video about bulimia. I'll have to figure out, you know, how to structure that. And maybe it's a retread of something I've created in the past because it's been a long time. I feel like I haven't talked about eating disorders in a while and I apologize. There's just too many topics. Um, But anyway, so um, needless to say, yes, I believe that the people who struggle with it do have their own judgments around it. And as a therapist, I ask... (laughs) Maybe it's because I'm an eating disorder specialist, but I'm just going to tell you what I ask, okay? When's the last time you initiated vomiting? How many times do you do that? Do you say every day? And I I will always, and I'm not, I I mean, I'm kind of giving away something here, but I will always exaggerate things. I'll make the numbers very large so that no one's ashamed to admit what they're doing. Um, So I'll overestimate, you know, like I'll throw out some numbers about like how often they're doing something or how much they're binging. I'll ask them to describe a binge to me and tell me what it is. Um, If they're like, oh, I don't know. I'll just start throwing out ideas of things to get an idea because a binge is defined differently from person to person. And it's like such a wide array. I'll ask them if they've ever used laxatives when they didn't need them. And I'll ask, uh, you know, if they use water pills and all sorts of things, uh, I'll, I'll just ask straight up and I ask all my eating disorder patients about things like that. When's the last time you ate so much you were uncomfortably full? How often would you say that happens in a week? Um, you know, when's the last time you made yourself throw up? When's the last time you didn't allow yourself to eat even though your body was hungry or exercise? Do you exercise? Do you feel like you have to earn your food? I ask all sorts of questions like that in order to better understand, because so often my patients will come in thinking they have one or the other type of eating disorder, but come to find out, you know, there's other symptoms that are important to note there. I also ask about self-injury because eating disorders and self-injury often coexist. So I want to make sure I'm not overlooking anything. Um, I'm just really direct and straight to the point. And a lot of times, especially my eating disorder patients will know all the numbers. So I'll ask for those numbers. Uh, How much calorically would you say you eat in a binge? How much do you feel like you're able to purge? They've run their crazy numbers, these wild eating disorder calculations that we can be running all the time. And I want to know what those are because I want to know what your brain is doing and what type of information you find the most, not just, it's not triggering is not the right word, but the most like helpful in fueling your eating disorder because that will help guide the homework and what I what I ask about and what we try to counterattack. Do you know what I mean? If I don't know who my enemy is, the enemy being the eating disorder, then I can't properly navigate, you know, this war that we're about to wage on it. And so I ask a bunch of questions. Um, Yeah. But I think that embarrassment or shame that you might be experiencing is very common. And I think it has to do with the fact that 
when we struggle with bulimia, some of the behaviors that we do are things that people don't like to talk about, right? I don't, no one, especially if it's done in secret, which we know eating disorders love the secret, but in pooping and puking, nobody wants to talk about pooping or puking. And that can be really embarrassing. And if we make a point of doing those things, you know, we don't want anybody to know. And we go through great lengths to keep it a secret. And I find that that's probably the biggest like stigma slash the reason that there's such embarrassment, but it, it comes along with all eating disorders. There's all sorts of funny and not funny, haha, just like strange things that we can do behaviors, rituals around our eating disorder. Um, yeah. So don't be ashamed. You're not alone. It's an incredibly, incredibly common eating disorder. And yeah, you said your therapist isn't judgmental. Maybe as a way to get this out, if you could, if she would allow you to either email in between sessions, knowing she won't reply, but just to get the information out, if you think you could send something that way, if you could write it down and give it to her, if you think you could read it, if there's another way for you to get some of that helpful information about your eating disorder out to her, I would try that avenue because saying it out loud is hard enough. Like you said, that was huge. And I'm so proud of you. It can take my patients months to admit and to call it what it is for. I even have patients like for years, who will just be like, I, I don't see again. I just don't see how this is an eating disorder. And I'm like, listen, it is. Um, and so that's huge. And I'm really proud of you, but let's find another way maybe to share a little bit more information so that we can kind of get that, those behaviors out and into the open so we can start working on it. Okay. Okay, let's move on to question number seven. This question says, hey, Katie, I'm wondering if you can talk about why as a borderline, I hate boundaries. Now, people will call themselves a borderline when they have BPD or borderline personality disorder. Not everyone loves to say it that way, but I just want you to know that's what they're referencing. So they hate boundaries. I also tend to get overly attached to anyone who I open up to about my personal struggles. And then I end up obsessing about that person and violating the boundaries of that relationship. Obsessive or intrusive thoughts in general are another issue that I want to learn how to manage. Thanks so much. Okay, we have some add-ons to this. I think there's like two or three questions after this, but let's just dig right in. Now, as a person with BPD, the real like crux of this diagnosis is an intense fear of abandonment. When I say intense, I mean so painful that the thought of someone leaving us is something we don't think we can survive. The fear of it happening can cause us to act in impulsive and inappropriate ways. I don't think people understand that, but I just want you to try to try to hear what I'm saying and digest it because that is the crux. Now, when you have borderline personality disorder and someone places a boundary, it's not okay for you to call me every day, or you can't just show up here or whatever. Someone might say, I have to go, I have to get up early, all regular healthy boundaries, right? That to us feels like potential abandonment or could be full-blown abandonment to us, depending on how our BPD feels to us, how intense or how unmanaged that symptom of fear of abandonment is in our life. So boundaries are uncomfortable. They feel like abandonment. And that's really why you're experiencing it as such. Now, um, I don't think there's another question on this, I guess. Oh, obsessive intrusive thoughts are another, or in general, are another issue I want to learn how to manage. Thanks so much. I cannot encourage, I know DBT is not for everyone, just like I said before, types of therapy aren't always perfect. But if you have trauma in your past and DBT doesn't work, I encourage you to look into a trauma therapist or attachment-based therapist. They can be incredibly helpful. But dialectical behavior therapy is really where it's at. It helps us 
the first pillar is like mindfulness. So getting in touch with how emotions feel like we we're talking about before, like how do we experience things in our bodies earlier on? So we can like make choices, not be impulsive with things. That's going to be the first step for you because it sounds like these obsessive or intrusive thoughts. We might react to them or act on them. That's kind of part of usually BPD for most of my patients over the years. Um, and we're going to have to be able to acknowledge those things are happening. And one of my favorite tools actually, and I have it in my, my last book called traumatized. I want to say it's on page like 94, maybe 194. Anyway, it's the impulse. It's an impulse log. And essentially what you're going to do is you're going to jot down, you know, the date and time, like when is this happening? What is it that I want to do? What's the impulse? Impulse could be to self-injure. Impulse could be to react, to call the person who told us they were going to bed and not to call them or whatever, or obsess over someone, do some of those actions. Maybe we're messaging them all the time, things like that. That's going to be the impulse. What is it that we're actually wanting to express? And this is going to take some like mental muscle. We could be wanting to express connection and love, or maybe we're, uh, we're feeling isolated or alone. Maybe um, we're trying to express, hmm, I don't know, adoration. I don't know. Could be that we actually just feel very sad and lonely today. And so we're reaching out to everybody trying to get that connection. Do you know what I mean? And it might take you some time. I know I've kind of jumped heavily into the, like, what is it you're trying to express? But let's say we aren't sure and we're doing this impulse log and we're like, well, I really want to reach out to that person again, but they said not to. And I'm kind of, I feel like I'm kind of obsessing. So what is it that I'm wanting to express? I'm, I'm trying to make a friend, but I'm not going about the right way. And that's all. And that's, so that's what you know. So that's what you write down. What are some other things that I could do? Maybe I could get online and chat with people in a BPD. You know, there's, there's, I'm sure there are support groups. I know uh, we have a Facebook group, Katie, that can be somewhat helpful in places like that. Cause you can just say like, Hey, I wanted to reach out to this person. I know I'm being obsessive because of my BPD just needed to talk to somebody about it. Throw that in there, get some feedback. Um, but it's going to be through, you know, DBT or some other therapy modality that we find a better way to manage the kind of impulsivity and reactivity that can come with BPD. Because I do believe wholeheartedly that it can be completely managed and understood. We just have to get the right support. Okay. Okay. Now there's a comment that says, as an add-on, is this specific to BPD or could obsessions with people also happen in complex PTSD? It can happen in complex PTSD because the obsessions with people are more about attachment. So if we have childhood trauma, our attachment could be messed up, meaning our parent wasn't there when we needed them or they were uh, unpredictable when they were available or not. Or maybe there was emotional neglect. So we've always looked for other people to fill that emotional void. So that can lead to us becoming obsessed with other people and wanting to what I always call about like taking that person and putting them in like that mom hole or the dad hole that was left for because they weren't around and they weren't what we needed or maybe they were abusive, right? We can try to find other people to fill those roles because our primary caregivers didn't. So it's not specific to BPD. Another person says, as an add-on, as a quiet or discouraged borderline, that's when a lot of that impulsivity or reactivity that I'm talking about is more inward. These people tend to be more self-deprecating, people-pleasing, isolating, and self-injuring. Not that the other type doesn't self-injure as well, but that just tends to be more of my quiet type borderline patients. 
So as someone who with with that, I find I'm hyper aware of boundaries mm -hmm, and am too scared to cross them. I tell myself about unspoken boundaries and do everything to adhere to this. I find if I cross these or other boundaries and the um, the other person has that they haven't mentioned to me and it makes them upset or angry, then I feel like a real rotten person and need to do everything I can fix to fix what I've done. Could this be in relation to BPD or something else like anxiety or complex PTSD? Okay. Um, we have two more questions after this. That could be part of both, to be honest, the complex PTSD or BPD. But in my experience, I'm leaning more towards the borderline be part because of the fact, well, it could come from either. I'll tell you why. So when we have quiet borderline, we kind of go to the extreme. It's almost the flip of of the same. It's like two sides of the same coin. One side's very outwardly reactive and outwardly impulsive. The quiet is internally doing the exact same thing. We just don't see it as much. So we tend to injure ourselves more, which is what you're doing. You're trying to like shrink yourself and not upset anybody. And that could come out of complex PTSD because of that fawn response. So when we are traumatized, we're put into our stress response. This happens over and over. And we're usually younger or littler. We can't fight back or run away. So fight, flight or off the table. We do freeze and or fawning, which is extreme people pleasing, which is what this sounds like. Um, and that's why I'm like, I could argue both sides. But now that I've talked it out, even with myself and with you, I'm now leaning more towards the fawn response associated with complex PTSD. Um, yeah, because you're like trying to, and then going over and above trying to fix what you've done, even though they never told you and you're not supposed to try to read minds. I wonder if you're walking on eggshells because of abuse you sustained in childhood or reactive parents that were really unpredictable. Yeah, I think those are just my thoughts. I know that's kind of scrambled up, but I think it could be both of those things. But now that I've talked it out, I'm leaning more towards complex PTSD. Another add-on says, can this also occur in social anxiety disorder? Because that's what I have and I have a hard time letting people go. My last friendship breakup took me two years to get over. Additionally, I was always easy to attach to female people in my life as idols in a way and strongly attached to them no matter if they were teachers or people my age. Additionally, I have trouble with the opposite gender. I feel uncomfortable having male people like my driving teacher and I don't like talking to them. Hmm. Moreover, could this be rejection sensitive dysfor sensitivity dysphoria or does it only happen in ADHD? Maybe you can explain. Okay, this does not sound like rejection sensitivity. Um, I have a video about that if you want to learn more. It doesn't only happen in ADHD, but that's the most common correlation. Um, social anxiety is when we worry about being embarrassed and not being able to like get out of a situation without embarrassing ourselves. So it has a lot to do with our worries about what people are going to think about us. Okay. So the, the struggle with meeting new people and being in new scenarios, maybe to make new friends would be related to your social anxiety disorder, but this difficulty getting over a friendship breakup, that's grief. And I don't know if that necessarily I mean, two years could be considered a long time, but it depends on the relationship. It depends on what happened. I think I don't want you judging that and thinking that has to be diagnosed because that's just grief and that's okay. And you can take your time. But when you talk about attaching to females as idols and getting really attached to them, doesn't matter. It sounds like it has to be the same gender as you. Uh, it sounds like females because you said the male person you're not comfortable with. So I, there's some attachment, something there. Is it BPD? I don't know. It could be. Is it complex PTSD? I don't know. It could be because um, it could come out of trauma in childhood. Like I said, not having a parent there that was reliable. That 
need to attach to a female. I'm very curious about your relationship with your mom. Not because this is 100% correlation. It's definitely something she did or didn't do. But there's a reason that you're attaching and wanting to, and idolizing people. And I think you should do some deep diving thinking about that and how, and then the fact that you don't like being around males, I'm suspicious of that. I think there's some trauma in here, but talk with your therapist because I don't think this is just social anxiety disorder. Because what we're talking about in the hating of boundaries and stuff, I do not believe occurs in social anxiety disorder. Okay. Final comment on this says, I would like to add that I'm afraid to upset people because I hate to deal with confrontations. Join the club. I don't know if it has to do with boundaries or not, but I hate to be in such situations. Also, I obsess with uh, subjects like suicide, even though I'm not suicidal. Oh, this sounds maybe OCD. Hmm. I obsess with subjects themes. And when I want something that I can't have it, like for example, to buy or shop for something, I try to get it at all costs. Oh, interesting. Maybe not OCD until I exhaust all avenues possible. I don't obsess with people, but I imagine talking to them as if they're in front of me or replaying events. What are your thoughts on this weird behavior? For context, I was diagnosed with some BPD tendencies, anxiety, and PTSD because the DSM doesn't count complex PTSD. I know, so annoying. Okay, the upsetting, not wanting to upset people and deal with confrontations, that's people-pleasing behavior. That can come from a lot of different avenues. Um, One can be trauma, that fawn response, right? Another can be... I mean, there's just so many anxiety because we obviously confrontations can be anxiety provoking. Like you said, you've been diagnosed with anxiety. I'm not that surprised. That could be more of like a social phobia or social anxiety kind of type of situation. Um, it could also come out of a lack of self-confidence. Um, it can, yeah, it, it can come out of a ton of different things. Like it can be part of the like quiet BPD again, like not wanting to upset people. Right. But again, I always think it could come out of narcissistic abuse. There's so many ways that in our life that this could lead to that. Um, I've had patients in the past who've had addicts in their family who don't want to cause upset because they were like the hero child. Right. And so they don't, uh, meaning in their family, they were the one child that would like rise above and do everything just perfectly. And if we have perfectionism, perfectionism in, you know, who we are and how we react to the world. We don't want to cause conflicts or confrontations. So those are just some of my thoughts about that. Um, the obsessing about different situations and, you know, suicide themes, subjects, but not people. So I don't think it's attachment based. I'm leaning towards more anxiety, but I'd, I'd want to ask a therapist or someone to assess for OCD. You don't say you have, well, the compulsion might be to like get the thing or do the thing that we need to do like at all costs. So I would, those are just my thoughts about it. Um, it's not really weird behavior. It's, I think it's anxiety driven and you guys know I put OCD kind of under that anxiety umbrella and it's definitely leading the pack here in my thoughts of like, if you guys don't know when you're a therapist and you see a therapist, we have, uh, we call it differential diagnosis, but it's essentially like, as you tell me symptoms, I write them out the the symptoms and I start marking out uh, different diagnoses that I think could fit. Right. So if you're telling me, you know, that I like, I don't want to upset people, hate to deal with confrontations. I could be like people pleasing behavior, question mark, trauma, question mark. Right. I start writing these things out. Narcissist and family, question mark, BPD parent, question mark, attachment, and then I start applying those kinds of symptoms or things to other diagno- like other diagnoses, uh, anxiety, social anxiety, PTSD, until I can figure out 
with your help and talking it out with you, what fits for you best, right? But this obsession thing is interesting. And I don't know if it's anxiety driven specifically, or if it is OCD. But because it doesn't uh, connect with people, I don't think there's any attachment there. But I'm just very interested. Um, but you do imagine talking to them as if they're in front of you and replaying events. I've I have a patient who did that exact same thing and that was anxiety driven for her. So I would, you know, talk to a therapist and get assessed, but those are just some of my thoughts. OCD and anxiety are leading the pack here. Um, and the the people pleasing behavior could come from PTSD or quiet BPD. But again, I'd want to be obsessed, uh, assessed for OCD just to be sure and clear about what's going on. Okay. Final question. Question number eight says, hi, Katie. Happy Thursday. Happy Thursday. And I hope you're doing well. Thank you. I am. Can you tell me the difference between hypomania and just plain old joy? I had a week or so where I didn't sleep much and had a ton of energy, but I'm 31 and I've never been diagnosed with bipolar disorder. I had just gotten back together with an old boyfriend and lots of things were just going right. However, I'd also had a medication change, an antipsychotic, and my therapist suggested it was mania or hypomania. I'm sleeping now and I feel like it was definitely out of my normal level of happiness. Could this just be a fluke? Or could I really have been developing bipolar disorder this late in life? I love your channel and you. I hope you have a great week. Oh, thank you. Um, okay, you too. Great question. Now, plain old joy, and this, I'm going to do my best to put words to this. It's sometimes tricky, right? To explain a sensation, a feeling. Joy is like elation and excitement and you can feel energized by being around people and just looking forward to things, right? Everything seems great. The, your life is in rose-colored glasses. Beautiful, beautiful. Everything is good. That's joy. Joy doesn't want to sit still. Joy wants to jump up and tell people about it. Hypomania is when we have so many thoughts and ideas racing that we like can't even do them quick enough. We can think that we we only we can like accomplish all these things. Not always. I'm just giving you some references. We don't need to sleep. We um, can talk so fast that it's hard for people to get a word in edgewise. We cannot be eating as much. Um, yeah, we can be really impulsive. We can overspend. We can um, engage in risky sexual behavior or drive really fast, drive really erratically. So that's really the difference. Joy doesn't affect our sleep. I mean, it maybe could affect our hunger fullness, but not for very long. Hypomania affects everything and it can feel very out of control and not our norm. Joy is our norm, right? Like we, we wouldn't say like me being joyous and excited about something like, oh, I'm so excited to go on this vacation or, oh my God, I, they finally, like, I remember when they first said they were going to publish my book, Are You Okay? I was so excited. I rode that high for like a week, but I still slept really well. I just wanted to tell everybody about it. I was so excited. I was energized and invigorated but I still ate and slept regularly. I was just really happy and really easy to be around and very just joyful, right? There's a difference. So I, the thing about medication changes, and I think the important component here that I really want to drive home is that because just because medication triggers an episode like this does not mean that we necessarily have bipolar disorder. A huge caveat under all diagnoses is 
that it isn't caused by medication or drugs or alcohol, like substance use. Now, could you have it? Yes, but not always. It's not like 100%, but it can trigger that. And it's so often that um, people with depression are misdiagnosed, meaning they have bipolar too, but they go to get help when they're feeling super depressed and they meet all the criteria for major depressive disorder. Because if you don't know, in bipolar 2, we meet the criteria for MDD, meeting major depressive disorder, and then we have hypomania. But if your doctor or therapist doesn't see you when you have hypomania, they just assume you have MDD. And then they treat you for depression, which pushes you into a hypomanic or manic episode, which is why your therapist thinks that. And I also think that. So I, you know, I don't know if you're still on the medication. I would please, please, please let your psychiatrist know or whoever prescribed you that atypical antipsychotic because we need to figure out what caused this. But again, it's just important. Um, Something I might encourage you to do is to start tracking your sleep either in an app. I'm sure there's like a sleep tracker. I haven't worked with one recently, but um, that or tracking your mood through like eMoods is a great app. There, anything like that. I want you to try to keep track. I always have my my bipolar patients or potentially bipolar patients track their sleep because it's such a good indicator. Pay attention to that. Let them know this happened. And we just have to be aware. And I know it sounds crazy to say this, but I want you to just be aware of this for about a year because usually there's at least a one kind of either a ramping up or a dropping down in a year. And this happened, you know, at a specific time, but I think I think it was medication-induced hypomania. Like I said, you could have it, but you might not. I've had patients have that happen and they don't truly have bipolar disorder, but many of us do, okay? So talk to your therapist, talk to your psychiatrist, track that sleep and your mood. Um, yeah, and a lot of people, it's not that you're developing bipolar this late in life. You could, But a lot of people go untreated because it's, I don't think people realize how manageable some of the symptoms can be. Depression is often overlooked and poo-pooed as being like, oh, everybody's depressed, right? Oh, I have a couple of weeks I can't get out of bed either. Like, or hypomania. Well, I just got a lot done. I felt really great. You know, some people said it was kind of annoying, but whatever, right? We can, we can just live our life. We don't even realize it. And until something happens where we recognize, hey, I don't think this is normal, we can live with things. I think there's always this misunderstanding that all mental illnesses like like bipolar disorder, depression, even schizophrenia, that, that but there's no way we could live a life with it. It has to be treated. But I'm here to tell you a lot of people go untreated for a really long time. And obviously, I know I mentioned schizophrenia. Usually that will show itself and be very impairing. But I just want you to know that everybody's experience of a different mental illness is going to be different. And we can sometimes just manage without treatment. Is that ideal? No. Is it good that we at least figure this out? Yes. Could we have had it for most of our life and not known? Yes. Could we have developed it now? Yes. That's why it's important to let them know, talk to your your professionals and the people in your um, treatment team there. But I really think that it was this medication change that pumped you up. Um, But I'm glad you're sleeping now and doing better. And it's just something to keep an eye on. But don't don't get overwhelmed. Don't allow yourself to go down any, you know, stigmatizing or judgmental rabbit holes. Bipolar disorder is completely treatable and manageable and you can live a wonderful, fulfilling, beautiful life. Okay. I hope that helps. 
I know things can be confusing. It can get scary, but you're not alone. Okay. If you have any other questions, let me know. Thank you all so much for listening and watching. I really appreciate you. Like I said, leaving reviews, sharing this with people really helps us grow the podcast and helps me be able to get cool collaborators on and um, potentially get maybe a brand deal here or there. That would be wonderful too. But really just to let people know it exists. Thank you for sending in your questions. Thank you for being part of the community. I love you all. Have a wonderful rest of your week and I'll see you next time. 